Hands up who likes that story. Awesome. And you've all heard it before, right? So what am I going to say today that you haven't heard before? I know some of you, um, because we're, if you're watching the talk online, this is the 10 o'clock service, and we did the same talk at the 9 o'clock service. The difference is I get double the time, so I can uh, spend even longer. Um, but to be honest, I could preach for an hour on this passage. Um, I won't, but I'm just saying I could. Because there's so much here, isn't there? Um, the beginning bit, just in case you wondered why that's there for context, it's that the tax collectors and sinners were gathering to hear Jesus. And this was upsetting uh, folks, that the tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered. And so that's the context of what are three parables about lost things that are found. Uh, and we get the third of the parables. Uh, which is uh, the parable of the lost son. And so the question I have for you today, to think as, as I speak and you reflect on the passage, who are you? Who are you? Who are you in this story? And who we are will change. So there are points in our lives when we might identify particularly with the lost son. There are other times we might identify with the older brother, and other times we have the chance to demonstrate the love and the heart of the father. And so it's not that you pick one and then you're stuck with that for life, like Myers-Briggs cannot change, apparently. Uh, this is something that will change at different points. And you might even find yourself identifying with all three characters in the story in different percentages. But maybe there's something that strikes you, particularly today as you hear the story. If I was preaching an evangelistic sermon at a mission, I would 100% focus on the lost son, on the welcome back that he receives from the Father, on the loving arms of the Father, on, on all, of, all of those wonderful things. But because I'm preaching in church, um, I think that actually that isn't the piece of the story that we most need to hear. It's good to be reminded of it, and I will talk about it, but actually I think it's the older brother and the father who are the two characters we need to pay close attention to. So just a recap of the story. Uh, the man's got two sons, and um, the younger one says, hey, can you give me my share of the inheritance? Now, you might be thinking... Um, because you're all mathematicians, if he has two sons, that's going to be divided equally. Chances are it wouldn't have been. Two-thirds would probably have gone to the older brother and one-third to the younger son. So just bear that in mind, um, that the inheritance the younger son would get would be less. If you're a younger brother or a younger sister here, you'll be feeling that as quite unfair, I'm sure. Um, but uh, we see the sibling rivalry through this whole passage. So only one-third. Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Note the word equally is not there. Anyhow, not long after that, the younger son set off. So the father didn't know at that point what he was doing, the younger son. He, he knew he, was, he wanted his share of the inheritance. He didn't know why. And clearly, it, it's demonstrated in the first few verses now, that what happens is the younger son has decided he is going to go backpacking around the world. He's going to go off on a trip. He's going to have fun. He's going to enjoy himself. He's got all this money. 
that he can use. And so he sets off for a distant country, uh, it says, squandered his wealth in wild living. How do you feel at this point? Are you thinking to yourself, well, that was a stupid thing to do? That was a foolish thing to do, taking the money and spending it on a round-the-world trip. He spent everything he had. And to couple with that, there was a severe famine. We see time and again in the Bible, slight digression here, but I think it's worth it. Uh, We see time and again that um, there are famines that come up. And the people that do well are the people that prepare. We can't predict what kind of famine it will be, what will impact us in the world. One minute it's, um, I mean, can you believe two years ago, the, the, the famine was that there wasn't enough toilet paper right? And, uh, and then suddenly there was no hand sanitizer. And then there was hand sanitizer, but it was only 69% alcohol, and if it wasn't 70%, it wasn't okay. So now if you go to the dollar store, you can find the 69% alcohols, and the drugstores sold the 70% good stuff uh, that would really clean your hands and kill all the germs, because that was what was decided. I think it was 70%. If it wasn't, someone will correct me, I'm sure. But there was a, there was a thing that it wasn't good enough. And now it's oil. I mean, we're always short of oil, uh, but there's a shortage of oil. Um, And so then the people that sell electric cars are saying, hey, you could buy an electric car and that will solve the problem. Oh, but we can't sell you one for two years because we haven't got enough chips. Well, haven't you got enough chips? And so it goes on. So there is a principle here that he did two things wrong. Firstly, he spent all his money. Secondly, he had no provision for the famine that would come. He didn't take care of what he had in the good times in order to protect himself in the bad times. So anyway, just saying that in case you'd noticed it. So he decides what he's going to do is he's going to go and work for somebody. He's going to go and wash the dishes in the back of the restaurant in the distant country. No, it wasn't that good. He went to the field and he was feeding pigs. And there's a significance, of course, with pigs, because for the people hearing the story, pigs are uh, not a clean animal. They're an unclean animal. And, um, and so it's not that he's gone to look after some, uh, you know, work in a rescue shelter looking after dogs or something nice, or, or gone to a stables to look after some horses, some kind of grand and, and big and beautiful animals. No, no, he has gone to work with the pigs. He's gone to work with the pigs. As Jesus tells this story, he knows how to tell a good story, doesn't he? You've got to give him that. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, which you probably do here in church, but even if someone doesn't believe in Jesus, you've got to say he's very good at telling stories, uh, which this parable is a story. Because the son, having spent all his money, works with the lowest of the low animals, the ones that the Jews aren't even allowed to eat. And so, he's feeding the pigs these things, and you might be thinking, well, what what was the pig food that he longed to eat? Well, apparently, it was probably made of carob um, beans, Um, uh, which I believe is turned into now carob gum, which finds itself in most of the foods in a packet. You'll see it there. Anyhow, um, so it's not that it was terrible, but but it says even that he couldn't eat because he had to give it to the pigs. 
And so this is the point when we might say, with our modern eyes, he comes to his senses. He realizes, well, if I'm there and I'm doing that for somebody else, well, I may as well go home, because I know that the servants at my father's house will at least get given a decent meal. They have enough to eat because he looks after them as his servants. So why don't I go home and work for him? And so he goes home. Just imagine for a moment how hard that must be for him. We know how the story goes, right? They didn't, he didn't know how the story was going to go. So he's going probably feeling quite sheepish. He's done his trip. He's spent his money. He's been humiliated having to deal with pigs for a job. And he goes back, ready to beg, ready to get on his knees and ask the father, would, would you give me a job? But while, verse 20, he was still a long way off. While he was still a long way off. His father sees him in the distance. He sees him coming towards him. And he doesn't wait and do nothing until he gets there. He has the excitement that you might have if somebody you haven't seen for a long time comes back and he goes out to him. He asks them to get ready for a banquet. That fine china that mum keeps in the cabinet that is never used except on special occasions. Today is the day you need to get that fine china out. That fattened calf that you've got in the deep freeze in the basement. Today is the day to go and defrost it. Not quite like that. But I'm just trying to say, what would it look like today? This is the meal that, you're that you've got ready on the plates that are ready to be served when the special guest comes. This is bring out all the stops. This is the bottle of wine that you've kept from 1976. Beaujolais Nouveau, hopefully not. And it is ready to, uh, to be set for a feast. And so, the older brother catches wind of what's going on. And what's he feeling? This brother is coming back, and we're killing the fattened calf, the best calf that we have that would fetch the most money at the market or whatever they would do with it, barter for the most number of uh, items of food. You're killing that because he's come back. He left. And when he left, he left me doing all the work. I was the one who took care of the place. I did all the work. You don't kill the fattened calf to celebrate me. You kill it for the younger brother. You prepare a feast for him. That's not fair. The challenge for us as Christians is that I think we can very easily become like the older brother. I'll be the first to put my hand up and say, I know I can. It is very easy uh, to become like the older brother because we feel um, righteous in ourselves, don't we? What does it look like in church um, if this was not a house and a party, but what if it's church? And we talk about welcoming people back, and they've, they've perhaps been away because of COVID, or they've been away for church for a number of years, and then they, and then they decide to come back. 
And when they decide to come back, they decide to come back uh, in, in good time for the service. So they arrive at 10 to 10. And they come in and they see a seat and they come in and they sit on the seat. And then you arrive at 10.02 just after the service has started and you walk in and you see there is somebody sitting in your seat because you've sat in that seat week by week by week for years. How does that feel when somebody is in your pew? Uh, I used to joke with some clergy colleagues I worked with that we could stick post-it notes underneath the pews and write the names of the people who would be sitting on them. And at one point in the service, we could say, now, if you reach your hand under your seat, pull out a post-it note, and if it has your name on, raise it up. And we, we, we never did this, but we thought that we'd probably get it right. Um, and actually, uh, that is how um, uh, I work out who's in church or not. We, we have a system now called Breeze and that tracks things. Um, but uh, I have a visual map of the church and when I notice a gap somewhere, I think, oh, so-and-so's not away because they weren't in their seat. Um, that's just a little secret I've let you into. So next week, if you all sit in the wrong seat, I'm going to be so confused. <laughs> um, and it's not particularly about seats. It's not that. But the point is, I'm just trying to say, what would happen um, and I've seen this happen in churches when we've had a service. Uh, often it's when there's a baptism service or, um, or, or some, something particular is happening when the bishop comes and there's a, there's a visit and there's more people than normal. And uh, the looks on people's faces when they walk in and see that someone's in their seat, absolutely priceless. It's this initial horror of, I've got to decide where else to sit. And I always sat in that seat and now what am I going to do? And that's not a church thing. It's a human nature thing. I commuted by train, and, and I would find that people would stand on the same place on the platform and get through the same door of the train and sit in the same seats every day. Because it's, uh, the, the reason for that is because it's easier for us to make a decision once, and then we haven't got to make that decision again because decisions are exhausting. It's why Mark Zuckerberg wears uh, the same T-shirt every day to work. He's the guy that runs Facebook, uh, Meta. Um, and it's why I, I wear one of two things to church. I either wear this or my black shirt, because then I don't have to think. Um, so it's not, it's, not, it's not having a go at you for always sitting in the same seat. But it's just trying to get into that perspective of saying, if we want to be a church, if we want to be Christians who have the heart of the Father ready to run out and welcome people in, what does that look like? It looks like maybe they want to sit in our seat. It looks like maybe they drink the coffee before we get there and we have to say, it's good that they were here rather than being annoyed that somebody else drank the last cup of coffee. I mean, in that scenario, of course, we can make more. Um, but don't be like the parishioner I once knew, who when someone sat in their seat, told them. And they said, hello, my name's so-and-so. I normally sit there. Can you imagine? <laughs> I'm sure it wouldn't happen here. But it did happen somewhere else. And we have to be careful. We also have to check our judgment at the door because the older brother was extremely judgmental. And when we read the story, I think it's easy to identify with the older brother. Anyone who's worked hard at something for a long time 
um, and then find somebody else just comes in and gets all the same perks and benefits. And yet that is the reality of the gospel. The reality of the gospel is that the heart of the Father and the love of the Father is there and he is ready to welcome all sinners back when they come. And all they've got to do is come towards him. All they've got to do is begin to take the steps. The son didn't have to get all the way to the house and even ask the question. He just had to be close enough that the father could see his intention. And I think that's how God is with us. We just have to get close enough that he can see us. And he comes and he finds us. The number of people who've come into this church because they've said, I drove by for a number of years and one day I saw the sign. Or one day I thought I'd just come in. The Spirit of God is at work. And as I shared in, and prayed as we were worshiping earlier, uh, it is good to pray for the Spirit that is at work. God is the God of mission, and the God of mission has a church. It's not that the church of God has a mission. The God of mission has a church, and so he's out there doing the mission, and the question we have to ask is how can we join in? How can we join in with the work that God's already doing? So as we hear this story, there is a reminder uh, that God loves each of us, that no matter how far away we go, no matter where we end up, we can always come back. And as we hear that story today, we can share that story with those we know and love. My challenge for you, if you'd like a challenge, is that you call somebody today who is not in church, and you say, hey, I missed you at church today. And it could be someone who was away for the week, and they'll feel encouraged that they were noticed. It might be someone who you haven't seen here for five years or ten years. And you can say, I just had this sense that I should call you and let you know, because we were talking about in church today the story of the prodigal son. I just wanted to let you know that we've got a seat saved for you with your name under it. Come back. And they might say, well, you know, it's really hard because I, I just, I just a bit nervous to walk in through the door. Um, and as we were chatting to a life group the other day, it just reminded me of this. Um, we're talking about, you know, may, maybe the way that we do it these days. If you're a coffee person, as you say, and your friend is, or your family member is, well, why don't we go out for brunch and then come to church? Or, or why don't we go for brunch after the service? And so you go, you pick them up, you bring them here. We don't expect people to come in on their own. I spent years of wanting to go to church. I didn't particularly like the Anglican church I went to, it was, uh, or the Anglican church in the village where I lived. Um, it was quite boring. A lot of Anglican churches I personally find quite boring. And so I didn't want to go. And I was low-hanging fruit. All it needed was a friend from school to say, hey, we're going to this church on Sunday, and, and then we're going out for donuts afterwards or whatever. Do you want to come? I'd have said yes, especially if their parent had picked me up and I had a ride. I wonder who it is you know who is like that, who would come.
but they're too afraid to come back. They don't have to get to the point that they're as far away as the sun in the story, as far away that they're feeding pigs because that's the only job they can get. There is so much in this story that we can, uh, we can draw from. But where I'll leave you is the reminder that we are like the lost son. And when we return to the Father, he welcomes us with open arms, with a love that is so deep that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross to save us from our sins. that we have to be careful not to be like the older brother, which as Christians is the biggest risk, I think, for us. The first risk is we can forget how much we're loved. That's the first part of the story. The second risk is that we can be like the older brother and say, well, I've been to church every week. I've had communion every week. I've been to my, all my life groups this year. I'm doing really well. I'm ticking all the right boxes. And this person just walks in off the street we have an opportunity to practice grace each and every Sunday. As I said last week, we, we have an opportunity to practice grace knowing that some people like to wear masks and some people don't, and so we want to be gracious to people and honor that people are in different places. We have an opportunity to be graceful when people who have left the church decide to come back. And over a lifetime, that happens many times even with the same people. We have opportunities to be graceful, to be gracious, not to be like the um, older brother. And we have opportunities to be like the Father, the Father whose love for us is so deep, so vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son, Jesus, to make a wretch like me a treasure. So that leads us uh, into a song we're going to sing, How Deep the Father's Love. I'll just pray as the band come up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story. We thank you that your love for us is deep and vast and wide and high. Lord, we pray uh, that you would come alongside us, help us to know the Father's love to share that love with others in grace and humility and joy. Amen.